Well, welcome um, to service this morning, everyone. My name is Amanda Neppel. I'm the discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines. And we have been praying for you. And we've been praying for what God wants to do in you and through you and in this place today. And so we are so thankful that you're joining us here this morning. And um, I can't wait to see what God's going to do here for our next uh, bit of time together. So um, no matter what you're thankful for this this weekend, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, My family had kind of a whirlwind. It started last Saturday night. my daughter was, my oldest daughter was in the uh, Allstate concert uh, in Ames, and there she is with 600 and some of her closest friends, and obviously that's her right below the arrow. If you can't see that, it's all you. It has nothing to do with the picture. Uh, and uh, so we did that on Saturday night, and there's a band, and there's an orchestra, and it was really amazing, and it was uh, just great to see those kids leaning into who God has created them to be. It was really awesome. Uh, and then early Sunday morning, then we had the opportunity to go on what I would like to call an intensive family sensitivity training. Others of you may know it as vacation. Um, but when you have a family of six and you've got some teenagers and a pre-teenager and then a younger brother, I don't know if vacation is quite the right word for it, but anyway, uh, we had a great time. We, had, uh, we went down to Orlando and did some of the theme parks down there, and so we had a wonderful time. But as always, when vacation comes to an end, it is always nice to be back home, and I'm so glad to be able to be back here with all of you today. If you can believe it, and frankly, even if you can't, time marches on, so it doesn't really matter, but this is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. And so we have our Advent candle and our Advent wreath up here to remind us of that. And the season of Advent is really all about taking the time to prepare our hearts and our minds for the coming of our Savior and remembering that 2,000-some years ago, Jesus, God, broke through to this world and that nothing would ever be the same after that. And as we think of this idea of preparing our hearts and minds for Christmas, so often, unfortunately, we get this we, we have our to-do list, right? And we think that to get prepared means to cross everything off of the to-do list. And maybe somewhere on there down the bottom, there's like, you know, take five minutes to reflect. Or, you know, just hoping that everything gets done so somewhere around the vicinity of December 25th, we can have a few moments of peace. And we kind of get caught up in all of it, and we kind of forget what it's all about, and we start thinking it's about things that it's not. And before we know it we end up looking a little bit less like people of God and maybe a little bit more like that guy, (laughs) right? Um, And we laugh at that movie. It is hysterical. It's one of our Christmas traditions. I watch it. I can quote way more of that movie than I have any business being able to quote. Um, But it's funny. It's over the top. But it also, for many of us, we know that we're just maybe a bad weekend away from being just that nuts ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes it's funny because it just kind of hits a little bit close to home, but the season of Advent is not about all the stuff that we make it up to be. The season of Advent is about remembering the time when God broke through. And it's been around long before there was such a thing as a holiday shopping season, long before there was such a thing as putting lights on a house, whether they happen to twinkle or not. Um, The season of Advent reminds us that we live in an already but not yet kind of world. A world where Christ has already broken through. God has come to earth. 
And so because of that, we are redeemed, we are forgiven children of God, we lean into our identity as God's children, and that's the already part. But the not yet part is that we know that the job's not quite done. And we know that uh, because of the words here in the Bible, we know that Christ is going to come again. And when he does, all of the things that are the not yet, all the things that are not quite the way we'd like them to be, that then when Christ comes again, all of those things will be taken care of. All of the sickness and the suffering and the hurting. We live in a time when Christ has already broken through and we experience redemption, but it's not yet done. It's not yet completed. And we, we, have, an under, we, we have an awareness of that. There's this tension, right? Because we live in already, but not yet. And if we think of it that way, then when we hear these words that Isaiah spoke today, when we think of it as an already but not yet kind of situation where we're waiting, then we can really identify with what Isaiah is saying to God's people here in, uh, in, in his book. God's people lived in a time, at the time of Isaiah, when they had been made promises. They shared a descendant, and that man was Abraham. And God had spoken to Abraham and called him out and said, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am going to give you more descendants than you can imagine, and I'm going to call your descendants my people, and I will bless them so that they can be a blessing to others. And Abraham said, okay, I'm in. It sounds pretty good. And at the time of Isaiah, it looked like all of that had gone completely sideways. It had been completely forgotten. And so God's people knew that they were waiting for this time when these promises that they remembered so well would be made right again because they had gone off the rails. And, and what the Israelites had done is something that we often do ourselves. When we're in the process of waiting for God, a lot of times when it's, it's ambiguous, it feels hard, we don't know what's going to happen, we tend to take matters into our own hands, right, and think that we're going to solve the problem ourselves. And that pretty much never, under any circumstances, goes the way that it should, right? And God's people were no different from that. So when we think about uh, these events that happened nearly 3,000 years ago with Isaiah speaking to God's people, we can identify with that because we really are not even that different from, from them and, and what they were experiencing at that time. So if we really want to understand this passage in Isaiah, when Isaiah uh, is speaking to God's people, there's really no way around it. We really have to understand God's promises to his people leading up to that. I kind of cut my teeth in ministry uh, teaching kids and doing Sunday school, and so at my heart, I am a, a Bible teacher, and so I really get excited about these stories. I understand not everyone else does. So I'm going to go quickly through these, but if you hear anything that you have questions about, Nothing in all of the world would make me happier than for you to send me an email or a, a Facebook message or Snapchat or whatever and just say, hey, I want to know more about that, truly, literally, okay? So if I go too fast and I, you want to catch up, I would love, love, love to hear from you. So with that, we are going to start with Jacob. And Jacob was actually the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is the guy who these promises started with. And then Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac. And God said to Isaac, hey, these are the promises that I've made. You're going to have a lot of descendants. You're going to live in this land that I'm setting aside for you. All you have to just walk with me, trust me, we're going to get there. And Isaac was like, okay, I'm in. And so then Isaac had two sons. And Isaac's sons were Jacob and Esau. And they were twins. Uh, Esau was born first. So Esau should have 
have been the one to whom God repeated these promises. But from the very beginning, God says he's not going to do things the way human beings think these things should be done. And God decides to use Jacob, the younger of the two, to be the one to carry on these promises. And so uh, God promises to Jacob, you will be the one who I am going to, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. You have been called. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons eventually end up being the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So all of God's people uh, there in the, in the early days of God's people came from one of these 12 tribes. And so we know then that Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph. And we can read all about Joseph beginning in Genesis chapter 37. Here's the deal. A lot of us have come out of Thanksgiving, and some of us like to joke that maybe our families, they're a little crazy, you know, because they're family. And so maybe we joke that our family puts the fun in dysfunctional, right? With Joseph, his family put the, I'm going to kill you, in dysfunctional, right? It was a complete disaster. It was a complete mess all the way around. And you can read all about it, all about it in Genesis beginning in chapter 37. So Joseph's brothers try to kill him. They end up instead throwing him into a pit. He ends up in Egypt. And uh, Joseph's story at that point kind of reads like, unfortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately. So he gets sent to Egypt. He's a slave. That's bad news. Things get a little bit better, though, because he does a really good job, uh, and he moves up in the household, but then he gets thrown in jail for something he didn't do. So then he's back down in the pit. And then when he's in jail, then he's able to interpret dreams, and the people that are in jail say that they are going to remember him and help getting him out of jail. So that sounds good, but then they forget, and he ends up staying in jail for a lot longer than he should have had to. But then he gets the opportunity to interprets Pharaoh's dream, and so he gets out of jail again, and then lo and behold, because of his interpretation, he becomes the second in command in Egypt. Like, he is way up there now. And so then because of that, because he interpreted that there was going to be a famine, and he directed the land then to just save and save all of their crops, then when the famine came, as it was going to do, because God was working through all of these things, who shows up looking for something to eat? Joseph's brothers. <clears throat> and Joseph doesn't respond to them in the way they expect him to respond to them. Instead of throwing them in jail or worse, Joseph forgives them because Joseph realizes that through all of that, God has been present and God has been working through all of the people around Joseph to bring them to that moment. And God renews then his promises with Jacob and their whole family then when they are reunited in Egypt and they stay there for a while. And then we know that we go on a little bit and the Israelites were very successful and very prosperous. And so we've gone from these 12 families now uh, to a couple, from a couple hundred people to a couple hundred thousand people. And somewhere in there, Pharaoh has made them slaves because he's scared of them. And so, but again, God had made these promises that he had passed down uh, through the generations, and so it comes time to raise up someone else then to rescue God's people from their slavery. So God calls on Moses. Moses was not a saint. Moses had his own list of ways that he had uh, not done what he was supposed to do. He, as a young man, he had, he had killed someone, then he ran away and he hid. Moses didn't have a, a spotless record, but God called him and said, Moses, this is what you're going to do. 
And then Moses led the people out of slavery. And then there at the mountain on Sinai, God renewed his promises with Moses and with the people. And you can read all about that in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 20, God says, here's the deal. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And I have called you to this place and I am going to give this land to you. I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. He renewed his promises. He reminded them of who they were. And of course, being people, they screw up and they kind of end up in what amounts to basically a 40-year time out. And all of the people in that generation pass away. And then Joshua is given the job of leading God's people now into the land that God has promised them. And you can read all about that in the book of Joshua. And at the very last chapter of Joshua, chapter 24, God renews these promises with his people again. And he says, this is your land. I, the Lord, your God, who called Abraham, who called Isaac, who called Jacob, who rescued you from slavery, who gave you these guidelines for which to live your life. I, the Lord, your God, have called you here. This is your land. I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. Things look good, right? Fast forward 400 years, and Israel now has kings. And their first king was Saul, and then their second king was a man named David. Again, David, a man who the Bible says was after God's own heart. But just like everyone else who God has used, he was a man who lost his battle with sin more than once. But he didn't let the mistakes and the ways that he had fallen away from God, he didn't let those things be the things that defined him. Instead, he allowed himself to be defined as a child deeply loved by God. He allowed God to define him as the next one who would, who would be the, the next in line for these promises that God had for his people. And so we can read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 how God blesses David and renews those promises. And he says, David, someone from your family will reign over Israel forever. David said, I don't know how this happened. I don't know why you have blessed me, but, but I say yes. Despite of everything I am and the things that I've done, I say yes to you, God. And then Solomon was uh, one of David's sons and he became the king after David. And he started off really great, really strong start. Kind of took a nosedive there. Solomon had several distractions, uh, not the least of which were his 700 wives uh, and 300 other people, women, that he had uh, in the palace there. And so he was, he was a very highly distracted man. And he ended up, <laughs> he ended up worshiping the idols that these uh, women had brought into the palace. And so he fell away from God. He fell away from who he was. He fell away from what God had called him to be. And so by the time uh, he died, the kingdom was kind of a mess. Uh, there were so many people who were claiming that they were next in line for the throne that um, the kingdom fell apart. Now, <clears throat> In some ways, if you think about that, it doesn't, it, it's sad that they couldn't get along, but we have to realize and we have to remember what all those promises throughout the course of history had meant to the people. As children of God called to this land, to this place, to be blessed 
so that they could be a blessing. That was the entire backbone of who they were. That was their entire paradigm. Children of God, since the time of Abraham, they could all trace their lineage back to Abraham because that was their promise. That was who they were. And so when the kingdom split, it was more than just kind of, oh, that's too bad. It was we have lost who we are. God was supposed to be caring for us and taking care of us. And what has happened? These promises have fallen apart. And it didn't get better from there because the northern kingdom then became the kingdom of Israel and the capital of Israel was Samaria and the southern kingdom was Judah and the capital of of Judah was Jerusalem. And so each of these two countries had their own set of kings. And the very first king out of the gate in Israel, his name was Rehoboam and he was one of Solomon's many, many, many sons. And he was not a good dude. (laughs) And you read the history of the kingdom of Israel and you can read about it in uh, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And the Bible will say with each new king that shows up in Israel that this king was worse than the one who came before. By the time he gets to to King Ahab, who the kids learned a little bit about in vacation Bible school this summer, uh, the kids learned about Elijah the prophet. And Elijah had gone to Ahab to try and straighten him out. And so we get the song, The Showdown on Mount Carmel, because it's all about this episode with, uh, with Elijah as a prophet to Israel. They weren't getting it. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people. There are people in the world who look at God and, and say to God and surrender and say, thy will be done. And then there are other types of people who live their own way and do whatever they want to do. And eventually God says to them, have it your way. And that's exactly what was going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. God had sent them prophets. He had sent them people to try and help straighten them out, to get them back on the right path, to remind them of whose they were, but they they weren't having it. And so eventually God said, have it your way. And the kingdom of Assyria then came in and took siege of Israel and of their capital city of Samaria and completely destroyed it. And so if the people who followed God, who remembered the promises, if they were shaken up by the fact that the kingdom had split in the first place, now the fact that half of it had been destroyed, obviously they thought God had completely forgotten about them. Because how could God let this thing happen to them? How could God completely strip from them who they were? And it's into that then that Isaiah shows up on the scene. He was a prophet in Jerusalem, and he is given the task of talking to the folks in Jerusalem who are seeing their cousins and their uh, extended friends and family being completely wiped out. And he has the job of saying to them, God, God hasn't forgotten you. It's going to be okay. God has this. You thought your job was rough right? Isaiah had the task of speaking into this situation and reminding these people who were devastated that God had not forgotten them. And so we read these words in Isaiah. We read these words in Isaiah chapter 9, and he starts off by saying that the land of Naphtali and Zebulun have been wiped out. They're having a hard time. 
That sounds like it's hard for us to understand, but the truth is those are just two of Jacob's sons. And so those tribes that descended from those two individuals, Jacob's sons, Zaphtali and Zebulun, that's who he is talking about. And that also just happens to be the same region where that would eventually be known as Galilee, which where we, is, we know where Jesus is eventually going to come from. And so we read that and we're thinking, you know, okay, this is great, so far so good. And then verse, he continues on, and then in verse 4, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, he talks about Midian, and he talks about this great battle. Well, it's no accident that Isaiah brings up that story about Midian, because that was something that we can read about in the book of Judges, where the Israelites were taking over the land that God had promised to them, and the Midianites were like these giant bullies, and they were oppressing God's people, and God selected a man named Gideon to lead the army. Like I said, this is another VBS story or, and song, and we sang, I believe that God will win victory over Midian to teach the kids about these stories. And so this was a story where God showed up. Gideon had an army that started out with thousands of people in it. And God said, no, that's too many. And he willed it down to 300 because God was preparing to intervene strongly on behalf of his people. It ended up being that the Israelite army had about 300 people and the Midian army had several hundred thousand because God wanted the people to know under no uncertain terms who had won that battle. God said, if I send you in there head to head and you're successful, you're going to say that you did it. And God said, that is not who is fighting for you. You think you're fighting for yourself, but I am fighting for you. Why? Because I have made these promises that I am your God and you are my people, that I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. So when Isaiah refers to that in his writing, in his passage, in his exhortation to the people, it's to remind them of who they are. It's to remind them of the promises that God has made to them. And so Isaiah goes on, and then it's in verse 6 that we get the words that we're most familiar with, right? For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And we read those words and we assume, oh, well, he has to be talking about Jesus. That's awesome. This is when we get to the Jesus part. That part makes a lot more sense. And I happen to have the opinion that Isaiah was, was writing as God told him to write. I don't think Isaiah could have imagined Jesus in the way that we imagine Jesus. Isaiah was writing what God had told him to write, and he was saying, your suffering will not be forever. There is one coming. And so we read these words, and that's a part of that. Uh, maybe we read these words, and we think about all of the music and the songs and, and the acts of worship that have been written based off of them. One of them, one of the most famous, is Handel's Messiah, which he wrote in 1741. It's this great operatic um, uh, play in three different parts, and it calls on this language in Isaiah as well as from the Psalms. And that is an act of worship to study these words in that way, but that's not all that's going on there as well. Because here's, here's the thing, what Isaiah is doing and what this little history tour I hope has done is to bring together for us that throughout history, God has been moving through the people that he put on earth to bring about the things that God has decided to do. It's not like on the day before Jesus was born or the day before Mary became uh, pregnant. It's not like God the Son and Jesus and God the Father were up in heaven having a conversation saying, I don't know, are you doing anything today? Should we get this started? 
No, it's not, it's not random, it's not haphazard, it's not any of that because God had been working on this throughout history through the people that he had placed here and the circumstances that they experienced. God was moving through all of that. And so what that means to us is, is not a single thing that's happening to any of us is wasted. We are here just like the people throughout history were here on earth, called by God, by a purpose, for a purpose, for his kingdom work. And even when it looks like mistakes are the rule and not the exception, even when it looks like everything has gone off the rails, God says, nope, I'm in that. I'm in that. I'm in that process. Through Isaiah, through his word, God reminds his people then and he reminds us now that he's present in the waiting and probably even most present in the waiting when it feels to us like we don't know where he is. He's with us in the waiting. Um, I mentioned that Last week, my family was on vacation, and we went to the theme parks down in Orlando. And so really, what that really is, is a vacation where you volunteer to wait a lot. And then you wait, and then you have like 75 seconds of woo, and then you wait for the next 75 seconds of woo, right? And it goes on and on and on for days. <laughs> literally for days. Now, listen, it was wonderful. It was absolutely, I'm, I'm glad we did it. Not sure I ever need to do it again, but I'm glad uh, that we have, that, that, that we made that trip. But here's the thing. When you know that sooner or later you're going to be asked to preach and stand up in front of people, you, you look at things and you notice things and you're hoping that God's going to give you a tidbit or something, right, that you're going to be able to share with folks. And so I'm watching people and I'm watching and watching and waiting and waiting <clears throat> And finally, it hit me when I was packed into the shuttle and literally so tight that you couldn't even move. You just, it was a great core workout because you just you couldn't get yourself balanced. You just had to hope for the best. And so uh, I look around, and these are situations that by any stretch of the imagination are stressful. Because you've got, I've got four kiddos, they're older, but my youngest is nine. Um, and so I know that that's stressful for me, so I can only imagine how stressful it is for parents who are there with younger ones, because you're worried about them running away, or you're running, worried about them losing the very expensive souvenir or whatever, you know, any number of things. You don't know where you're going. You're at the mercy of other people to give you correct information. You are hoping that you'll be able to catch the transportation that's going to get you from A to B where you need to go, but you don't really know. And then add to that all the people around you, so many people around you, and many of them don't speak English because they're visiting from other countries, so you don't know the norms, they don't know the norms. By any stretch of the imagination, by any definition, it's a stressful situation. And we've been raised and conditioned to believe that under that type of a situation, things should completely just go off right? That because obviously people who are different from us are dangerous, and this should really, you know, we've been conditioned to believe that this is the chance where anything, if anything can go wrong, it's going to go wrong here. <clears throat> but I was just so struck and realized that for the most part, if given the opportunity to advocate for themselves alone or to give something up for the better of the group, Almost all of the time, people chose what was better for the group. 
People didn't budge in line necessarily, or if they did, the people behind them chose to let it go. <clears throat> and it occurred to me how much we, we want the same things. We want happiness, we want good health, we want good things for our kids. We at the core of who we are want the same things. And I was just struck repeatedly by how similar we actually are over and over. It doesn't matter what language you speak, a kiddo laughing sounds the same. You're on a ride and you're, you're scared or you're excited and you let out a yell, sounds the same. A child getting a rather stern talking to in any language pretty much sounds the same. <laughs> you don't have to guess what's going on. At the end of the day, at the core of who we are, we've all been given this inherent kind of sense of what's right and what's wrong. And God has given us that intentionally so that we can be together and get along together and live in the world that we live in. Now, there are always exceptions to that, no question. <clears throat> but we are born with that innate sense of knowing what's best for the, for the group, what's, what's right and what's wrong. And what's so interesting to me is that, ironically, people will take that very truth and they'll say, well, I don't need to know Jesus because at the end of the day, I don't need to know Jesus to be a nice person. And the truth of the matter is, I 100% agree. You don't need to know Jesus to be a nice person, but please don't get confused because being a nice person was never the point of following Jesus in the first place. The point of following Jesus is to say yes to him and to receive redemption and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And when we do that, then it opens us up to claim our place in the history of the world and in the history of what God is doing in this world through us. Because when God wants to do something to people, God always does it through other people. By saying yes to who we are in Jesus, then we get to have an active role in the not yet part of where we live right now. The not yet part of where we live is the place that can be so confusing and so hard. But God throughout history has called people. God throughout history has called fallen, sinful, messed up human people to do the work that God has needed them to do. And so that's why we talk about these stories, because when we start to learn about these people that God has used throughout history, guess what? We see ourselves in those people. That's why I talked about those patriarchs of our faith, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and David and all of those. Now, I got to tell you, when I was a younger woman and a younger teenage girl and I was sitting in church and I was listening to all of that, I would think, well, isn't that quite a lovely list of names of men that we get to talk about? Because I was a smart aleck like that. Maybe a little bit still. <laughs> but here's the thing. So women in the group and in the audience today, and particularly young women, if you're struggling with that, I want to tell you the women are there too. So I encourage you to look into Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Judah, one of, one of Jacob's sons, Tamar outsmarted Judah in such a way, Judah was being a jerk, and she called him on it. And then there are women like Rahab, and you can read about her in the book of Joshua. And there are women like Ruth, 
She has her own book. It's called Ruth. Same with Esther. You can read about Esther. You can read about Deborah in the book of Judges. Even Bathsheba were people that God called and God used to bring about the purposes that he had here on earth. Now, I think, well, I'm pretty sure the reason we don't talk about these stories and these women from the front here is because our job up here is to kind of keep things PG-13 or lower. All of these women, their stories are just a skosh bit scandalous, just a little bit. So I think that's why they don't get a lot of airtime, but it doesn't mean that they're less important. It doesn't mean that God used them any less or any differently. And I think for all of us, men or women, it doesn't matter because so many of us in this world, we feel insignificant. It's so easy to feel insignificant. There are 7 billion people on this earth. And when we think about that, it is so easy for us to think that God doesn't see us, that God doesn't know our circumstance. Sometimes, for me, I'm at the front of this line, it's so easy for me to think, well, I have enough to eat. God's really busy with the people who don't have enough to eat. We feel like God doesn't see us or God doesn't care, but do you know who else felt that way? Every single one of those women, because in their society, nobody saw them. And God says, I'm going to use you. It doesn't matter. I will use you because God uses people for his purpose every single time. None of it is an accident. And none of the people who God used and who God called, none of them were morally superior or had any other uh, specification for the job description other than the fact that they were willing to say yes. In spite of their flaws, they were willing to say yes. And so when we talk about rediscovering Christmas, I think if we want to rediscover Christmas, I think we need to consider rediscovering who we are in light of what God has done and if we are ready and willing to say yes to however God wants to bless us to be a blessing. Because I don't know how it is for you, but I know God wants to draw you closer. I know God wants to bless you to be a blessing to others. If you're here today because you're visiting and it was easier to say yes to your family and come than to put up a fight, I totally get it. If you are fairly new to this whole mess and you're just trying to figure out what it is to follow Jesus, then I encourage you to take a look at the Gospels. And the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because if you're trying to figure out what all this means, and you've heard about this Jesus guy, but your main representation of Jesus is what some quote-unquote good or not Christian has said about him, I encourage you to meet the Jesus of the Bible, because I think that if you really give him a shot, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. I think when you meet the Jesus of the Bible, I think it'll change your life. And if you know the Jesus of the Bible, but you're still feeling like you want to know more about God and you want to draw closer to God, then start at the beginning and remember the stories. Remember how God has been present throughout time, through people bringing us closer and closer to the not yet part of the already. God is calling you to be a part of what he's doing because he has called people throughout history. It hasn't been a mistake. He, don't insult God by assuming that you're too young or you're too old or you're too single or you're too married or you're too whatever to draw closer to him. I was going through a time not too long ago and I was just really feeling like I needed 
I needed more God. <laughs> and so I was praying about that, and he, I just really was convicted that I needed to go back through. I needed to start at the beginning and read through to the end. And I was like, I've done that. Really? Like, really, God? That's what you want me to do? You want me to go back to my Bible? Like, what about like, going on a mission trip or something, you know? And there's, that's awesome. The, those are wonderful things to do. But God said, no, I want you back here. So I don't know what he's calling you to do, but he has blessed that time that I've spent gone back through from the beginning to learn who I am in relation to who God is. And he wants to do that for each one of you as well because he wants to bring his kingdom come through each one of us. As we get ready to leave today, I have a video that I um, just love this time of year. And uh, some of you maybe have seen it before, but it talks about, tells the stories of the Old Testament, some of the big ones leading up to the birth of Jesus. And it reminds us that God has been acting intentionally no matter what since the dawn of time. So let's take a look. <clears throat> when God wants to do things to people, he does it through people every time. Every single one of those people up there was no different than you or me other than they said yes. So as you prepare your heart and mind these next few weeks for Christmas, for God breaking through, I hope and I pray for you that you'll be looking for ways that you can say yes to how God wants to renew his relationship with you and rediscover with you who you are in light of who God is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are who you are, the beginning and the end, God, that you have been working on our behalf before we ever even knew who you were, that you see us, that you call us, that you promise to use us as part of what you're doing here. We don't understand why you would choose to use us, God, but we do, but you do. And so we just fall on our knees and we say thank you. Thank you, God. So as we leave this place today, help us rediscover who you are. Help us rediscover what it means that you broke through, that you keep your promises. God, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, and it's through your precious son, Jesus' name, that all God's people said, Amen. Hope Des Moines, go in peace, serve the Lord. Have a great week.